Well, good morning to everyone. Welcome again to the assembly services. It's so good to see everyone. It's been kind of an interesting week here for all of us, I'm sure. But it's so good to see everyone that's been able to make it out safely today. We're thankful for a nicer day and to see some sunshine and warmer temperatures. And especially thankful to be able to gather together to worship this morning. If uh, Just for those who are interested, those who like to follow along with an outline... Uh, if you use your phone or a tablet on the uh, Uversion Bible app, there is an uh, event that has the outlines in it, so that is available if anybody would like to use that to follow along. A Christian life is a new life, and that's something that we need to remind ourselves of. It's the life of a sinner that's been washed and made a new creation. And sometimes that's hard to remember after we've been in the church for years or maybe even decades, But it is truly a new life, and it must continue to be a new life. It is a new life that begins in a new birth. And the Bible speaks of a process of a new birth. Jesus, in fact, told Nicodemus that if one was to be in his kingdom, that man or woman must be born again. And that analogy is a fitting analogy, because just like a child that is born must grow, so too a Christian who is reborn, who has made a new creation, must then begin a process of growth, and maturity. And as a Christian grows, that should lead to a holier life that looks more and more like Jesus as more and more time passes. Now as a Christian pursues righteous living, however, and as they become holier and more righteous, they must also avoid self-righteousness and arrogance. One can and must live a holy life without developing the holier-than-thou demeanor that so many people or possess and that puts off so many people in the religious community. As a Christian grows in their walk of Christ, thus they must also grow in their own humility. But also as a Christian grows in their own ability, in their own understanding, and hopefully they grow humbly, they also grow and mature in their knowledge, and as they do so, they become more and more capable of leading others. They become more capable of influencing and teaching others. The knowledge that they have learned, the truth that has built them up and changed them into a new creation is something they know enough of that they can share that message and that truth, that changing gospel with others. And further, if they truly have developed a righteous yet humble attitude, then they can teach others through a care and a loving way that is the most effective at influencing others towards the gospel. Everything that I've said so far is true of all Christians. It should be true of all Christians. And because it's true of all Christians, it is especially true of Christian leaders. The church needs guides. It needs teachers. It needs men who are capable of teaching and exemplifying what it means to follow Christ. And such men are the elders, overseers, and shepherds of the church that we have been studying about. And as a congregation, as we seek for, to try and find men and to develop men who can meet the qualifications of, that are laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we need to remember all these things. And the qualities that are under certain consideration today are the ideas that are printed up here on the board that an elder is said to not be arrogant, he must not be a recent convert, and he must be able to teach. Now these may seem like three very different ideas, but I do think they are connected in a great way, and that's why we have chosen to select these three to go over together. And I hope that all of us learn something from these things. I hope that they teach us a bit about 
evaluating a man and seeing who it is that is capable and able of leading us as an elder. But as has been the case with all of the lessons so far, I think what we have to study today, while specifically is applied to an elder in his life, these things are true for all of us. And I hope to show that this morning. But let's begin with the idea uh, that an elder is a man who is not arrogant. Now, in the letter to Titus, the eldership qualification list begins with the idea of above reproach. He goes on, Paul goes on from there to then speak about the family qualifications, the idea that the man must be the husband of one wife. He must have children who are believers. We've covered all of these things. And in verse 7, Paul reiterates the importance that an elder or an overseer must be above reproach. But following this, Paul gives five negative qualifications. That is, he gives five attributes or attitudes that an elder should not have. These are ways that you can say a man is not this. And the first of those negative qualifications is that he is not arrogant. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. That's what's up there. And it renders that passage as not arrogant. That's rendered uh, that way in many translations. But this is one of those words that is kind of translated a few different ways. The other very common method or way of translating this idea is not self-willed. Or some that even translate this as not overbearing or not self-pleased. And all of those get to the idea of what this qualification is, what this demeanor is, that a man is not arrogant or self-willed or overbearing or self-pleased. Now, this word, this Greek word that is found here in 1 Timothy, or in, in Titus, excuse me, is only found one other time in the New Testament. That's over in 2 Peter 9 verse 10, when Peter speaks about the idea that the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment in verse 9. It says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. That, I, that word willful is the same word that we're looking at as arrogant, that an elder is not to be. And so that passage in 2 Peter kind of paints a picture of a very stubborn, very rebellious person who despises authority. They care only for themselves. They don't even worry about blaspheming heavenly beings. Obviously, this is a very arrogant, very self-centered person. Now, when we think of arrogance, what we typically or probably immediately think of is someone who just thinks too highly of themselves. And that certainly is a sin. In fact, it's condemned in many passages in the New Testament. But in this particular passage we're looking at, this particular word that's used in Titus addresses a very specific or very special type of arrogance. And it is an arrogance that affects how one works with and among others. Uh, one Greek dictionary, Mounts' Expository Dictionary, that's a, a Bible dictionary I like to use, defines this word as one who pleases himself, willful, obstinate, arrogant, or stubborn. That idea of pleasing himself seems to be popping up, or willful. It's someone that is focused, who's so arrogant, and is so focused on their own desires and their own uh, will, that they have no thought of others. They don't care for the needs of others, the desires of others, the purpose of others. It's the attitude of a person that must have things their way, or absolutely no way at all. Now, any person on a position of authority has to battle this temptation. All of us have to battle arrogance and make sure that we develop humility to some degree. But positions of authority have to especially face 
uh, this temptation of self-willed arrogance. Because when a person is in a position of authority, there is always the temptation to rule tyrannically. That is, it's tempting to assume that because you are a leader or have some measure of power or some measure of authority, then surely you you are the best qualified. You know best. You are going to do the best thing. You look, begin to feel superior to others. And because of that, you feel that it's my way or the highway. And that's the approach many people take to leadership. But in the Lord's church, this simply will not do. There are many obvious reasons that an elder cannot be arrogant or self-willed. First of all, the elder is a servant of God. And thus, the elder must be focused on pleasing God instead of pleasing self. Too often, many leaders view their position of power for their own benefit and their own pleasure. In fact, power is why so many people want to be leaders in the first place. Sometimes you watch the news, or at least I watch the news, and I see what politicians go through or other leaders go through, and I think, well, who would want that? And the simple answer is sometimes people want that because even despite all the hardships and the difficulties that may come along with it, people are drawn to power. People love power. I remember working in the bank and sometimes, you know, everybody always wanted to be a manager and to manage other people. And then sometimes people got that wish. And some people did very well at it. Some people hated it completely. They always thought that that power, that authority would be fulfilling and they would enjoy it. And then they didn't like it. Or worse, some people would get in that and they loved the control over other people. Some people just enjoy wielding power over others. And they use it for their own benefit. Elders in the church cannot be the type of men who are going to use their position and what measure of authority that they have for their benefit. Elders must recognize that they are shepherds. They are leading the church for the benefit of the members and to glorify God. If you're a man younger or older that desires to be an elder one day, remember this. While that may be an honorable, noble position, the purpose of being a leader in the Lord's church is not to be honored by men. And it's not to be recognized for your skill and your ability and your nobleness. It is to serve others. And it is to glorify God. Now that is again true for all of us but especially for church leaders and those who would be elders. Second, elders cannot be arrogant or self-willed because they have to work together. One of the things that we've seen and has been, I hope, understood throughout our studies is that churches are not led by one man, by one bishop or one elder, but the Bible always speaks of elders in a plurality. It is a group of elders. So there have to be at least two or more men that are qualified at any given point if there is to be an eldership. And that means that every man who is going to be an elder must also work alongside at least one other elder and hopefully more than that as other men are able to be qualified and appointed as elders. That means they have to work together. You can imagine the difficulties, and maybe you've seen it in business or school or other places, the difficulty that comes when you have two or more people that are in charge that share leadership, and yet neither one of them wants to work with the other. Both or more or all of them feel that their way is the best way, and they won't cave, they won't ever give in, they won't ever listen to someone else. It has to be their way. Well, that just brings disaster upon any type of group that is led by those types of individuals. And the same would be true in the church. And third, (coughs) elders 
are servants who lead by example and by teaching. They are not dictators who rule by executive fiat. They are shepherds who are guiding sheep. But if they are stubborn and obstinate shepherds, then ultimately they will hurt the sheep instead of helping them. Now, this is a quality that's only found in the list of Titus, but I believe it can be viewed as the antithesis of what Timothy, the list in Timothy says when Paul says that a man must be gentle. That word refers to someone who is merciful and forbearing. That's a word that we're going to study, Lord willing, in one of our future uh, lessons about the eldership. But you might keep that in the back of your mind. I don't think that really they're different. I think that they're just two sides of the same coin. An elder is not to be arrogant and self-willed. Instead, he is to be forbearing and gentle. And so Lord willing, we'll cover that <coughs> at another time. But also, as we consider this idea of arrogance, it is connected with the next quality that we are going to consider. And that is, in Paul's list to Timothy, one of the final qualifications that Paul gives it has to do with an elder's experience as a Christian. And he even gives a reason to it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 that an elder must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with the or with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now that word, he must not be a recent convert. I think the New King James Version renders that he must not be a novice. But almost all translations that I've looked at uh, the English standard include and have something like not a recent convert or not newly converted. The word is kind of an interesting one. It's not found very often from what I can tell, uh, even in other literature when I read other people. But it's a word that literally means newly planted. And so obviously it has a figurative meaning here. It is a new plant. It is a new convert, someone who is new to the cause of Christ. It is simply refers to someone who is a new Christian. They are someone who has recently obeyed the gospel, and thus they are in the earliest stages of their faith. It is a person that we might typically call a babe in Christ, using again that metaphor or metaphorical language of a new birth. Now, we understand just in other realms of life, it's important if someone's going to lead others, that they need to have some form of experience. Teachers cannot teach unless they have first learned. Imagine trying to learn how to read from someone who doesn't know how to read. Obviously, it would be impossible. In businesses, they seek managers and executives who have experience with the business or experience with leading and managing other people because they realize that inexperience is not going to be an effective way of leading the organization. And more importantly, the church needs to be led by men of experience. Christianity is a process of growth. But if the congregation is led by spiritually immature men, how can the congregation ever hope to grow to maturity itself? But beyond the obvious, which we have just seen, Paul gives a specific reason why a recent convert should not be appointed as an elder. He says, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now this explanation teaches us something important that I believe is true about all of the qualities that we have considered. And that is that these qualifications are given to protect the congregation, but they are also given to protect the man who would be the elder. See, Paul is not giving a list to just harshly leave out men from the leadership. When men are unqualified to be elders and leaders in the church... 
It is not a kind or a good thing to put them in as leaders of the church. In fact, what Paul is looking at, while an inexperienced leader could obviously be a danger to the congregation, it is the danger that is posed to the leader himself that Paul focuses on here. Paul warns Timothy that if he were to appoint an inexperienced man as an elder, he would be setting that man up for failure, possibly even condemnation. See, when someone is given a position of prominence, of prestige, of power in any degree, if they are given that before they've earned it, before they've learned what they will need to be able to perform their task, before they have any experience, then it can easily lead to discouragement or it may lead to an overinflated ego. We've probably seen this, or maybe you've seen this at your place of work, or again in academics or in politics. Someone gets a position of power before they're really ready for it. And oftentimes it goes straight to their head because they don't understand and they're not firmly grounded in what they need to know to be able to really perform the task. And so all that there is is the power. And again, it overinflates their ego. Now, again, this kind of ties to what we've already talked about with the idea of arrogance, this being puffed up with conceit. But Paul, that's a pretty colorful description that Paul uses of puffed up, filled up with conceit. We all have known arrogant people. Uh, I think of athletics. You see some of these people that are incredible athletes, incredible sports stars, and, but for all their talent, they're a little off-putting because they're so arrogant. But at the end of the day, you say, well... They're arrogant, and I wish they weren't so arrogant, but they are very talented. And some people understand their talents or their intelligence or their attractiveness, and knowing such things, they become arrogant or conceited. And that's bad enough. But this idea that Paul is speaking of goes even further. It's far beyond being overconfident. It is arrogant far beyond reason. In fact, the word that is used here of conceit or puffed up with conceit is tied to a Greek word that means to be crazy or demented. And thus, one of the lexicons that I use defines this word as to be so arrogant as to be practically demented, to be insanely arrogant. Now, a person that is practically demented because of their arrogance is a person who cannot be reasoned with. It's the type of person who will not listen to others because they're the boss. Maybe you have a great idea. Maybe things are falling down around everyone, but they won't listen because they're in charge. Because they love their position of power and everybody else is going to know that they're in charge and no one else can help them in any way. They will not serve others. They will never accept rebuke or correction. They will not consider the welfare of others. And clearly that type of person would be a terrible leader in any situation. They would be an especially terrible leader in the church. Obviously, if a person is to that point, not only would they be a danger to others, but they would be sinning themselves and in a dangerous situation for eternity. Perhaps this is even the connection to Paul's warning when he says that one may fall into the condemnation of the devil. Admittedly, that's kind of a strange phrase, but perhaps this is one of the ties. Now, we don't know all the details about why and when and how Satan chose to rebel Against God, I know it's a very mysterious thing and people ask about it and try and think about it. All we know is that at one point Satan, who apparently was an angel of God, an angel of light, chose to rebel against God. 
Now when you think of that, surely there is nothing so demented, so insane, and so arrogant as challenging God. And yet that's exactly what Satan did. Obviously any man that is susceptible to that type of mindset and behavior should not be leading the church and the Lord's people. And the saddest part is, sometimes we may not see a man who is given to that tendency, but we may set him up for that tendency if we appoint him to be an elder before he has any experience. And I'll mention just a side note here that I think is important for the church and for congregations. Obviously, we recognize this when it comes to elders, but sometimes we put way too much um, leadership or authority on young men just because they have some talent, because they can speak well and they can give a sermon, and we immediately think that they should be sent out and become a preacher. And we need preachers, and we should encourage young men to grow into teachers and preachers I think we should be very careful about thrusting men, especially young men who are inexperienced, into leadership roles. Because Paul warns that what won't work in the eldership, so why would it work anywhere else? Also, as far as that phrase, fall into condemnation of the devil, there's some other views. Now, that could mean that he falls into the same type of condemnation as the devil, or it could mean that as a leader he is targeted by the devil and will easily succumb to Satan's devices because of his inexperience. But whatever the exact meaning, the result is tragic and needs to be avoided. And thus the church must ensure that it only appoints experienced men as elders. Now, while some of, this as- some of, this aspect of, this, some of the aspects of this are clear. Obviously, we shouldn't install someone who's a new convert into the eldership. There are still some questions that we may understandably have. First of all, we may ask the question, well, how long is someone a new convert? That's all well and good to say, well, don't appoint a new convert, but how long is a person a new convert? Well, the Bible doesn't give a timeline. The Bible doesn't say that a man has to be a Christian for a year and by that point, he should no longer be a new convert. It doesn't say that it's five years or ten years. There's no minimum time frame of how long a person must be a Christian before they are no longer considered a recent convert. So how do we know? Well, when we look at the examples of congregations and elders in the New Testament, we see many congregations, I've taught on this in past sermons on leadership, but many of the examples of congregations who had elders had elders within a decade, within 10 years of being established. In fact, when Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in the Galatian churches, as we read about in Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders in every church, those congregations that they were appointing elders in were a few months to at most a few years old. And these are all new converts. Now, Perhaps the newness of the congregation demanded a slightly different approach. Perhaps there were converts that had a deal of spiritual maturity already, such as men and women, or men who had been devout Jewish converts. But whatever the case, it did not take decades and decades for men to no longer be recent converts. And I think what that means is that when Paul and the other apostles shared the gospel, and converted people. They worked diligently to teach them. And they were apparently the type of people that were ready to learn and grow. 
And so while there was a time that they were new and recent converts, they did not stay as babes in Christ for very long. And what we can safely say is that for a Christian to not be a new convert, they must have had enough time to learn God's Word and to grow in their own faith and faithfulness. But further and more importantly, they must have actually grown. There are some Christians who have had ample time to grow and mature. There are Christians who could not possibly, by any stretch of the imagination, be called new or recent converts because they've been members of the church for years, if not decades. And yet for all the years and decades that they have been in the church, they are still spiritual infants. They may not be recent converts, but they are still spiritually immature. The Hebrew uh, recipients were rebuked for this very thing in Hebrews 5, verse 12 through 14, where that letter says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, Hebrew writer expected these people to be able to teach others, yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who loves milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. A few things we can see there from Hebrews that gives us a clue, and this is also going to tie into our last point uh, or last quality. A person who is no longer a recent convert, a person who has grown and matured, is a person that one, is able to distinguish good from evil, and two, a person who has come to a point in spiritual maturity where they have enough knowledge, experience, and ability that they are not entirely dependent upon learning from others, And in fact, they have some degree of ability to teach others. Hebrews 5, verse 12 through 14, is not directed at elders. It is directed at Christians. And all of them that could fall under this category, that were not able to teach others, although they ought to have been, were rebuked. They were all expected to have grown to a point where they could share in their right role as a teacher in some way. And here's the truth. Appointing new converts does not seem to be a big problem among the churches of Christ. I can't think of a single example that I've ever seen or heard of or heard someone else talk about where they were worried that a person, that a church was appointing a new convert. I've never heard and can't even imagine of a congregation today baptizing someone and within the next few days or weeks or even months saying, well, I think it's time for them to be an elder. To be honest, that simply is not that big of a problem, if it is a problem at all. But there is a much bigger problem. And that is the tendency of many Christians to be content with spiritual infancy. Too often, congregations are not able to appoint elders because despite having men who have been Christians for years and years, they have not grown, they have not spiritually matured, and they really have not gained the spiritual experience that is needed to lead the Lord's church. And there's absolutely not a single person in this room that should be content with this. Every one of us should recognize the importance of growth. Every one of us must seek to learn and grow in our own faith. Every one of us should be caring and concerned about the growth of one another and ready to help one another grow. It is not wrong for a brand new convert to be spiritually immature. 
But it is wrong to remain in that state perpetually. Whether you are young or old, a man or a woman, whether you plan to be an elder one day or not, if you are a Christian, then you should be devoted to spiritual growth. Now this brings me to another question that I want to just address because I think it fits here. And that is a common question of how old must an elder be? This is a question I've been asked by people and I've heard people discuss. We, we think, you know, perhaps there's an age that we should expect an elder to be. I've heard people say, well, he should be at least in his 50s or maybe his 60s or maybe at least in his 40s. And the truth is, the Bible does not give us a minimum age. The Bible gives us no age requirement for an elder. Now, I think it's natural to wonder if there should be such an age, but the Bible itself does not provide us with an age qualification. And if there were an age requirement, I believe wholeheartedly that we could trust the Bible to provide it. For example, the Bible does give an age qualification when it comes to widows. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 9, Paul tells Timothy that he is not to let a widow be enrolled. That means to be supported by the church if she is not less than 60 years of age. That means if she is under the age of 60, she's not to be enrolled as a widow. Paul has some other instructions for those widows. What that teaches us, now some people have tried to say, well, if a widow can't be a widow indeed until she's 60, can an elder be an elder? Well, I think that's a false comparison. Paul has instructions for younger widows, but he says the older widows have to be at least 60. But what that really teaches us is when age is important, the Bible gives us the age. It would be wrong for us to say, well, we think that a widow that's 50 should be enrolled and supported by the church. The Bible says she is to be over the age of 60. But the Bible is completely silent about an age when it comes to elders. And that means that any requirement we would impose, say we decide that we think it would be best for a man to be at least 50 or older, would be completely speculative. What number are we going to come up with? 70, 60, 50, 40? What number are we going to agree on? We have no basis to agree on a number because there's no number in Scripture. So it would be speculative and dangerously it would be in addition to the qualifications given by the Holy Spirit. Now, the term elder naturally speaks of a person who is older because it is a person who has lived at least long enough to have experience. And experience can only come with time. But... Time and age is not a guarantee of experience. And so again, what the church is really to look for in an elder is a mature Christian with experience and the ability to teach and lead others. Now to truly be a man who has proven to meet all these qualifications that we're studying in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, I don't think that's going to happen in a young man. There simply isn't the time to have learned and grown and proven these things. I simply say this so that we are careful not to think that a man needs to be 70 or advanced in years in order for him to qualify if he is a man of godly experience and we can see and understand his spiritual maturity. But on to our last quality that we want to discuss today. An elder is a man who must be able to teach. As a mature Christian, he is required to be a teacher and able to teach. Nearly every translation renders this, uh, this way, is able to teach. I found at least one translation that translated this as skillful in teaching. But I think able to teach, in my personal opinion, is a little bit better. And the phrase means exactly what it says. He has the qualifications and the ability to teach or instruct others. 
Now, as a mature Christian, and one who is responsible for guiding and growing and protecting the flock, an elder must therefore have the ability to teach the flock. And part of the responsibility of the, uh, the elder is to teach the congregation that he cares for and to teach the souls that he is responsible for. Now, teaching is the bedrock foundation of Christian leadership. When Jesus gave the Great Commission to the Apostles in Matthew 28, He commanded them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Apostles' job was not to go and baptize a bunch of people. Yes, they were to baptize. That's how people became disciples. But Jesus knew from the very beginning that once a person was baptized and began following Christ, they were what? They were immature. They were a babe in Christ. And they needed to be taught. And so the Great Commission was you go and you teach and you baptize and then you teach more so that they grow and they learn. That has always been the pattern for the growth of the church. When we simply go and baptize but do not teach all the commandments of the Lord afterwards, we are not fulfilling the Lord's desires. Also, when Paul described the various roles of leadership in the church in Ephesians 4 verse 11, he listed the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. All of those may be distinct and have some separate responsibilities, but they all also share a common trait. And that common trait is every one of those roles has the ability and performs the function in some form or fashion of teaching. A man who is unable to teach, at least teach others, simply cannot function as an elder in the congregation. Now the question that comes up is to what degree must an elder be able to teach? Must an elder be a public teacher? Or can he be qualified as long as he is considered to be adequate at teaching others privately? Well, first of all, let's consider that idea of who is it that is able to teach. And with this question, I think that we need to be careful. The Scriptures do not require that a man be dynamic, that a man be eloquent, or that a man be our favorite preacher or the most interesting individual to listen to in order to be classified as able to teach. Unfortunately, we often judge men's teaching ability based on their presentation, their style, and if we're honest, how entertaining they are. Some preachers are very, very entertaining. And they may have a few good things to say, but by and large, it's how dynamic they are and how much they give a presentation that's enjoyable and easy to listen to that makes them recognized as skillful teachers. Now, some people are very dynamic and very skillful at actually teaching. But the truth is that the purpose of teaching is not to entertain. Now I think teachers, and this is true of me and all the men I hope that teach in this pulpit, should work on our ability to teach in a way that's easy to follow, that's easy to understand. Working on our presentation and our speaking ability is not wrong, but that is not the primary focus. The good teacher is first of all the man who has learned the Scriptures and then who faithfully teaches the Scriptures in their truth and in their simplicity. And this is not an excuse for a man to not work at improving his own ability. But I believe wholeheartedly that when a man stands in the pulpit and teaches the Word of God, whether it's a little bit dry and maybe a bit dull, if he is teaching the Word of God, then we can learn. Sometimes we talk a great deal about the need for men to grow in their ability to teach, and that's true. We don't talk very often about growing in our ability to listen. 
I'll admit, when I was a teenager, I had to, it was hard to listen to people that weren't the big name preachers that were so easy to listen to. Congregational teachers sometimes were hard to listen to. I was a younger man. I'm not saying it's always easy still. But I do believe I've grown. I hope I've grown in the ability to be able to recognize when a man is teaching God's Word, there is something to learn. Now to help us understand if a man has this ability, Titus says in Titus 1 verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So a man is able to teach when first he has faithfully learned the word of God. The word of God. Again, we must be a student before we can possibly be a teacher. Having faithfully devoted oneself to learning the word, a man is able to teach if he is equally devoted to teaching the word in its truthfulness. The able teacher is not a man who waters down the gospel, nor is he the man who adds flair to it. The able teacher sticks to the gospel. As Jesus, or as Paul said to the Corinthians, he chose to know among them Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He just taught the gospel. The able teacher is able to accurately instruct others in sound doctrine. They're able to answer important questions. It doesn't mean that an elder has to know everything, but he must know the basics. He must be able to teach the sound doctrines of salvation, of worship, of those things that are so essential, and he should be able to study and grow in those areas that he doesn't know. And further, the able teacher is able to recognize and refute false teaching. Sadly, the church always has and always will have to battle false doctrine. And the man who should be the front line of defense... Now, all of us share a responsibility in knowing the truth. But the front line defense in the battle against false doctrine is the church leaders, primarily the elders. As men of spiritual maturity, they must be men who know the teachings of Christ well enough to recognize when someone is teaching what is contrary to the gospel. But they are not just able to recognize the falsehood, they are able and willing to combat it. They are willing to defend the truth, refute error, and rebuke those who would teach falsehood. Now this doesn't mean they're harsh or they're cruel. They rebuke the false teacher with the ends of protecting the congregation and saving that soul, bringing them back to the right understanding. And this ability is very important. In fact, when you look at Titus's list, this ability to refute false doctrine, this ability to teach is the last qualification, not because it's the least important, but because for the next six or seven verses after the qualifications, Paul talks about the danger of false teachers and false teaching. The ability to teach is paramount for a man to be able to lead the church. Now that is, brings up a question, must he be a public teacher? Or can he be just a private teacher or one or the other? And again, I think that this is a fair question, an important question, and one that we want to be careful with because do we, we do not want to add to or take away from these qualifications. But as we've tried to do through these series, we want to ask the reason for this quality. It's not just to fill the pulpit. But the case, or in this case, the reason has been stated, an elder must teach in order to instruct others and to refute false doctrine. Now, obviously, a man who can do that publicly and privately is qualified and able to teach. What about a man that can only do one or the other? Again, I believe that this requires caution, but I believe that an elder needs to have the ability to teach both publicly and privately. And this is the reason. First of all, if a man can only teach in private, that means there may be a significant portion of the congregation that does not even know that he is able to teach, that has not benefited from his teaching ability. And if that is the case, how can the congregation know that he is able to teach? 
Secondly, while the public teaching uh, during church assemblies should not be the only teaching that is done, it is the only teaching that is done with the entire body present and together. While I believe that personal studies and private studies and small group studies are wonderful and even important, the only times that we learn as a body, as the collective group that we are, is when we come together publicly. And that means these opportunities of teaching is the only opportunity for a teacher or a preacher or an elder to teach the entire congregation in a manner that is fully united and together. Thus it is one of the most important times, not the only time, but one of the most important times for unified edification. And thus for a man to be an elder and never be able to utilize this time to teach and guide the congregation, I believe makes his ability to lead questionable at best. And third, he must refute false doctrine. Now false doctrine is often spread privately, but it is often spread publicly as well. And there are times that false doctrine needs to be rebuked and refuted publicly. And if an elder does not have the ability to publicly teach against false doctrine, then can he truly protect the congregation? Those are the reasons I think that a man must be a, a public teacher in order to be considered able to teach. But on the other hand, while public teaching is important, we should not neglect the importance of private teaching. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that when he had been among them, he had taught them both in public and from house to house. That means publicly and privately. Sometimes, again, our problem is not with bringing up men who are public teachers, but maybe our problem is with bringing up men who are able to teach privately. Men learn how to write up sermons, and how to con but they don't learn how to conduct a Bible study or have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone or provide spiritual counseling. And we need to grow in those areas. An elder needs to be able to teach, whether that be publicly or whether that be privately. And one last question I want to ask. Is this, this qualification only for the elders? For a long time, when I talked about the eldership, I would say something like, most of these qualifications apply to all of us. Only a few things uh, apply just to the elders. And I might give, you know, you don't have to be married to be a teacher. You don't have to have children to be an elder. You don't have to be able to teach to be an elder. But after studying this, I don't believe that's quite right. While not all of us are or will be elders, I certainly believe that every member of the Lord's church is required and expected by the Lord to have some ability to teach. In fact, this phrase that is translated able to teach is found one other time in Scripture. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and 25, says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now that may be directed at Timothy as an evangelist, but I think all of us here that are Christians desire to be the Lord's servants. And if we are the Lord's servants then we are required to be able to teach. Now this will vary. Not everyone can or should be a public teacher. Not everyone can or should be an evangelist. But in some form and in some fashion, every one of us share the responsibility of teaching others if we are mature enough to do so. Fathers are to be teachers in their homes. Mothers are to be teachers of their children. Older men are to teach younger men. Older women are to teach younger women. All Christians are called upon to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, according to 1 Peter 3.15. So yes, we are all supposed to be teachers in some sense. Are we elders? 
Of course not. But elders are to be shining examples of what it means to be a servant of Christ, a mature servant of Christ. And this is true in the fact that they are mature enough to teach others. And all of us should desire such maturity. It will not do for us to say, I do not need to be able to teach. I do not need to study my Bible enough to teach others because I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I don't want to be an elder. If you are a servant of the Lord, you are to be growing in your ability to influence others through both your life and when when opportunity comes through your words as well. Well, the church needs qualified leaders that will do that very thing, that will lead. We need men with the right experience, with the right ability, and with the right attitude. That means men who are mature in the faith, men who are able to teach, but men whose experience and ability does not puff them up with conceit and with arrogance, but men whose maturity has led them to humility and whose ability is characterized by their faithful yet loving and gentle application of that ability so that they may truly influence and instruct others in the way of Christ and always defend the truth. I hope that this sermon has helped us understand these qualities a bit better. I hope they've helped us uh, in the future when, Lord willing, we begin looking to appoint men to be elders that we'll be able to distinguish such men. But I hope it's challenged every one of us to see where we can grow in these areas of being humble, in the areas of spiritual growth, and in the area of being able to teach others. As we bring the sermon to a close, we want to extend the invitation. Perhaps there's someone here who is not even a new convert yet, but you can be today. It may seem daunting at first to think of the spiritual growth that is required, and I hope that what I've said today doesn't frighten anyone who's not a Christian, but it does begin with a spiritual rebirth. But the beauty is that if you're ready to take those steps, Christ is ready to be your Savior. He is ready to wash and forgive you of your sins. You don't have to prove anything to be able to obey the gospel. If, you're ready to, if you believe in Christ and you're ready to repent and change your life and confess that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized, then you're ready to begin your spiritual walk. And the growth will come if you'll be faithful to the Lord and you have a family of people that would be ready to help you in that growth. And so if there's someone here who's not a Christian... We hope you'll make the choice to become one today. Or if there is a Christian who desires the prayers of the church for some reason, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.